This is the Moira Pentecostal Church podcast, providing you with sound biblical teaching. We hope you will be encouraged, challenged, and blessed by this ministry. To look at just one verse initially uh, from Psalm 85. Psalm 85. It's a beautiful verse, verse, verse 10. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And normally, if I would read a, a verse from, or a text from a psalm, I would almost always give you the the background of the psalm, who wrote the psalm, why they wrote it, the circumstances it was written in. However, on this occasion, I I just want really to focus on this one single verse. It's a beautiful verse, very simple, but very, very profound words indeed. One writer of old called these the heavenly twins. And so that's the title of my message this morning, Heavenly Twins. However, Humanly speaking, uh, there are twins that are identical. Uh, Unless you were a close family member, you would be very hard-pressed to notice the difference in them. Uh, They look alike. Their mannerisms, uh, the things that they would say or do or think are very, very similar. And they're like the proverbial two peas in a pod. However, there are other twins who don't look alike. And again, uh, their mannerisms, their way they think about things or do things is not similar. They're very, very different in their own right. And it would seem like, unless you knew this, it would seem like they're not cut from the same cloth at all. Jacob and Esau, they were twins by birth, but they weren't twins by nature. Uh, Esau, the Bible says, was a profane man. He had no interest in the things of God whatsoever. He was a hunter. That was all he was interested in, being out in the field and looking for deer, whatever the case may be. No interest in the things of God, no interest in the Word of God or the people of God. And yet Jacob, who became Israel a prince with God, was different. He had a big interest in the things of God and wanted to follow the Lord. And we know that from Jacob... Uh, he became Israel, became the Israelites, and then from Esau became the Edomites, and the Edomites was the ancient enemy of the Israelites uh, for generations. So they're very, very different. Now, in our text where it says, mercy and truth are met together, those two words met together in the original is just one word, and wherever it is mentioned, it is always denotes hostility to opposing powers or forces or people or situations that are opposites. And it's very, very true when it comes to mercy and truth. Mercy and truth are complete opposites. Truth is unyielding. It's unbending. It cannot be changed. It will not compromise. It's hard. It's fast. It's black. It's white. There's no gray in it. Uh... (coughs) 
Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar, if necessary. God will not alter his word for anyone. He will not do that. Whether that's evolutionist or whether that's scientist or whether that's the gender bender or whether that's some liberal theologian who wants to change and twist God's word to suit the prevailing uh, society that we live in. God will not change his word. Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. Jesus says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my word will never pass away. Mercy, on the other hand, is willing to pardon, is willing to forgive. When it sees repentance and change it's willing to be gracious and it's willing to be merciful and compassionate and slow to anger so how can these unlikely twins mercy and truth how can they be reconciled how can they meet together they meet together in Christ that's how they meet together. They meet together in Christ. John 1.14, And the Word, which is Christ, And the Word became flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we beheld His glory as the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John 1.17, For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we see this in Jesus' words and actions. All through the Gospels, we see this. Do you remember in John chapter 8? you remember how that the scribes and the Pharisees who were always trying to trip Jesus up some way in his words or his deeds, and how they found a woman in the act of adultery, and they trailed her through the whole town and brought her to the temple where Jesus was preaching, and they threw her at his feet, and they said... The law of Moses says that this woman ought to be stoned to death. What say you? And that was truth. The law of Moses did say that. Absolutely true. But Jesus was preaching mercy and grace. So as he go against, go, go against the law of God, is he, go, 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 is he going to go against truth? So what's he going to do? So they thought they had him on the horns of a dilemma. Uh, how could he reconcile truth and mercy? Well, of course, they threw the law at Jesus, so Jesus is about to throw the law back at them because nobody knew the law better than he did. Now Moses in the law commanded that such should be stoned, but what do you say? They said, testing him that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. Now we do not know what he wrote on the ground. But best guess probably is because they brought up the law. Best guess is that he was writing about the law on the ground. Perhaps the Ten Commandments. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. And so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Now this is the law. Deuteronomy 17 and Deuteronomy 19. This is the law. And the law was, if you were the accuser and you were the condemner, 
and it was found to be true, then you had to throw the first stone. You were the accuser. That was the law. That was the truth. So Jesus fired that back at them again. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had raised himself up and saw no one but the woman, he said to her, Woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? Ah. You see, in the law, again, Deuteronomy 17 and 19, in the law, you could not condemn somebody to death unless it was in the mouth of two or three witnesses. One person would not suffice. So all the accusers had gone. And Jesus says, Where are you? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, Neither do I condemn you. There's mercy. There's grace. But go and sin no more. There's, there's truth. And so in Christ, he brings truth and mercy together. In John 5, which we're not going to read, Jesus heals the man at the pool of Bethesda. That's a wonderful, wonderful miracle. And so he gets healed and he goes off. But the scribes and the Pharisees are giving him a very difficult time because it was on the Sabbath day. It didn't matter to them about listening in their ox and their ass that they'd fallen into a ditch. But if somebody got healed, well, that was a major problem. Such, were the, such was the hypocrisy of these people. But later on that afternoon, Jesus meets them in the temple. And here's what he said. See, you have been made well. There's mercy. But go and sin no more, lest the worst thing come upon you. There's truth. Remember Peter warned Jesus in Luke 22, and he says, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. There's truth. But I have prayed for you that your faith does not fail. There's mercy. In the word you shall have tribulation, John 16. In the word you shall have tribulation, truth. But be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. There's mercy. So mercy and truth meet together. Now God had a dilemma. A major, major problem. Here's a big theological problem. On the one hand, truth cannot be changed. But yet on the other hand, there's mercy that wants to change. So how can God reconcile these true? Truth and mercy present a dilemma. Truth condemns us. The law is truth. Truth condemns us, yet mercy pardons us. So how can a just God justify the unjust and remain just? Say that again. How can a just God justify the unjust 
and still remain just? Again, the answer is in Christ. Truth and mercy meet together in Christ. What our Lord Jesus Christ did for us on the cross reconciled his truth and his mercy. The truth that condemned us and the mercy that saved us. Let me explain. I'm going to use a, a, just a few words that Paul used. And by way of explanation, because we need to know how the gospel works. And I am amazed and appalled at times how many Christians do not know what the gospel really, really is. We can just simply say, what's the good news? Somebody says, well, explain how that works. Because I don't know how that works, so tell me how it works. Could you do that? Could you explain to them if somebody really, really wanted to know? Now, I'm not suggesting for one moment that if you're just witness to somebody casually that you have to go into all of this. But what if somebody who's really hungry to know, they want to know? They're anxious. They're seeking. How does this happen? Well, let me explain to you this morning. First of all, the first word is justification. Justification. Romans 3.24, you don't need to turn to these. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 3.28. Therefore, we conclude that man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Romans 5 and 9. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we are saved from wrath through him. Now, being justified before God is a little bit different than being forgiven by God. <coughs> being justified before God is a little bit different than being forgiven by God. Forgiven in the natural, an ordinary everyday in the natural. Forgiven implies I am guilty, but my offense has not been counted toward me. <coughs> I am guilty, but my offense has not been counted toward me. Justified implies I have been tried and found innocent and pronounced not guilty. Legally then, I have been declared just. Now let's take that into the spiritual. Spiritually speaking, I have been forgiven even though I was guilty, but my offenses were not counted towards me. And we who are believers understand that perfectly. Amen. But but I have also been justified, counted innocent, legally declared by God to be just. Of course, this doesn't mean that I am just, just that God counts me just, declares me just. Now, if you were in a court accused of an offense and it was found to be absolutely untrue, that you really had upheld the law, that you had broken no law, then you would be declared just. But our problem is, in God's court of law, we did break the law continually. We broke all of God's laws all of the time. We were lawbreakers. And yet, even though we were unjust, yet God justified us. So God literally justifies the unjust. Now that doesn't seem like justice. That seems more like mercy to me. 
What if someone, just say, what if someone murdered a relative of yours and they were caught and they're up at the court before the judge and you were sitting there listening to the trial? And what if the perpetrator, what if the murderer said to the judge, Judge, I have no idea what came over me. I don't know why I did that. I'm guilty, but I don't know why. But if you, if you just let me go, I promise you I will never, ever do that again. And one of the judge then turned around and said to that murderer, what he said, do you know what? I, I think I believe you today. I, I'm in really good mood today. I, I, I think I, I'll just let you go today. You wouldn't think that was justice, would you? You'd say, what kind of a judge is this I've got? That's no justice. <coughs> but God is perfectly just and completely merciful. How come? How can he be that? How can he do that? Romans 3.26, to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just and the justifier of those, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans 4.5, but to him who does not work for salvation, for his own salvation, that is. But to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly. You see, because God is just, sin had to be atoned for. Because God is just, debts had to be paid. Because God is just, a sentence had to be passed upon the guilty one. Otherwise, God wouldn't be just. You and I were the guilty ones. We were the unjust. We were the debtors. We were the ones who had to have a price to pay. But we didn't have. We couldn't make payment. The demands on us was too great. <laughs> we could not pay for our sins. We could not do it. The demands of justice was too much for us. But God found a way both to satisfy his justice and to satisfy his mercy and his grace. Romans 3.24, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.9, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet unjust, while we were yet lawbreakers, Christ died for us. Hallelujah. Now, I said those few scriptures to make a little bit more sense of what I'm about to say next. So God giving a son to die upon the cross, to shed his blood, to pay the price for our sin, he declares us not guilty. He declared us to be just. We are justified when we believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins and we receive him and accept that they were justified. But justification is only one side of the coin. We need something else besides justification to complete the transaction. We need more than just the removing of our sin and our guilt. We need to be made righteous before a holy God. Are you still with me? Let me put it this way. If you owed me say a ridiculous amount, say a million pounds you owed me. And there was absolutely no hope that you could ever repay that back to me. 
But what if I said to you, even though you owe me a million, and I know that you could never repay me, I am going to release you from that debt. I'm going to forgive you. I'm going to set you free from the obligation of that debt completely. From this day, you are debt free. Wonderful that is, isn't it? That would be great. But wonderful as that is, what if I, who's a multi-multi-millionaire, what if I said to you, but not only am I going to release you from that debt and make you debt-free from this moment, but you're still broke. You're bust, you have nothing. You're free from the debt, but you're not rich, you have nothing. So therefore, I'm going to put a million pounds into your account so that you will never get in trouble again. You're not being debt anymore, but you'll have money to live on for the rest of your life. So to be justified by God, you have to be forgiven your debt. It has to be canceled. It has to be wiped away. And Christ did that on the cross. But being declared righteous is something more than just that. So how did we become righteous? How were we made righteous? Again, we must look to the cross for the answer. Philippians 2.8 And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Romans 5.19 For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so that by one man's obedience many were made righteous. And in this unfathomable verse you cannot even begin to get your head around this verse 2 Corinthians 5.21 for he God for he made him Jesus who knew no sin to be made sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him Philippians 3.9 and being found in him not having my own righteousness which is from the law but that which is through faith in Christ the righteousness of which is from God by faith. So in order for, for us to understand what justification meant, Paul took us into the courtroom, standing before the judge, guilty as charged, but then declared by God to be just, to show that his mercy triumphed over his judgment. But this was no cheap grace. This was no easy pardon here. Because a price had to be paid for the breaking of God's law. And Jesus Christ became the payment, the ransom for our sins, for the penalty of, of our sins. So when we put our trust in Jesus, God declares us the unjust to be justified in his sight. In order to show us how we're made righteous, how we're declared to have a right standing with God, really that means, then he takes us out of the courtroom and he takes us into the accountant's office. The Apostle Paul was very good. Jesus was the king of parables, wasn't he? But the Apostle Paul loved to use analogies and metaphors and similes and all kinds of literary tactics in order to get us to understand things. You know, he, he taught, for instance, about athletics. Know you not that they that run in a race run all but one receives the prizes. And he talked about, uh, about soldiers and the army and the sword 
of the Spirit and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation. He talked about all these things. He talked about biological things. He talked about the body. Christ is the head. We are the body. Fitly joined together. All the parts playing their part together. So he did all these things. And so here he, he, he uses a kind of a accountancy terms to help us understand about righteousness. And so to do that, he uses another word, imputation. God imputing righteousness to us. God reckoning to our account righteousness. Philippians 3 and 9 again. And be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Jesus Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So Christ's perfect righteousness was imputed to me. It was reckoned to my account. Are you still with me? All right. Let me just read a couple of verses from, from Romans. Romans chapter 4. Romans 4 and verse 5. But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is accounted for righteousness. Just as David also describes the blessedness of the man to whom God imputes righteousness apart from the works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. And so David here is telling us that rather than imputing sin to us, he imputes righteousness to us. He gives us Christ's righteousness and reckons that to our account. Thank God he does that. Amen. So to impute means to charge to the account of, to ascribe to, to reckon over to one, to attribute to. Reconcile means to make adjustments to, to conciliate, to exchange mutually, to restore to favor. So the thought here is to, to make an adjustment that will bring about an exchange that will reconcile something, that will restore something. The adjustment has to be made. Now all of us know in accountancy, whether that's professionally or whether it's in your home, you know that your, your bank account needs to be balanced, doesn't it? There needs to be some exchange between the debit side and the credit side. In other words, to be reconciled, Paul takes these two words, reconciled and put, and he gives us a perfect picture of what Christ has done for us on the cross. little story in the little book of Philemon. Philemon was a Christian businessman that Paul knew personally. And Paul was in the big city under arrest. But a young slave, Onesimus, worked for Philemon, Paul's businessman friend. And he stole something from him. He ran away to the big city. And in the providence of God, met up with the apostle Paul. Paul led him to Christ. And when it came time for Onesimus to be released, Paul urged him to go back to his master, and he wrote a little letter, which is the little letter we have here, the one just before Hebrews. And in this little letter, he talks to his friend Philemon about Onesimus, tells him now he's not just a slave anymore, he's a brother in Christ. Now he said, I want you to accept him as that, accept him as a brother in the Lord. But listen to this. And Philemon is, you know, 
And verse 17, well, verse 15, for perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose that you might receive him forever. No longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If you therefore count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But note this, but if he has wronged you or owes anything, so a crime was committed a penalty had to be paid, and Paul acknowledged that. It wasn't as if, well, he's got saved now, so just forget about that. No, a crime was committed. He stole from him. Uh, something has to be paid here. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. Reckon that to me, not to him. Put it on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay. See what Paul's doing? He's saying, listen, he owes you. But I know he can't pay. But just take what he owes you and put it in my account and I'll pay it for him. You see, this is imputation and this is reconciliation. And there's another example of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Father, I know that they owe you. They have broken your law again and again and again but I'll pay the price for that. It's at great cost, but I'll give my life to pay the price for their sin. God is a great bookkeeper. He holds the accounts of our lives. There's a ledger in heaven with your name on it. Revelation 20 says, and the book was opened, which is the book of life, and the books were opened. In every ledger, there's a credit side and a debit side. Now, we understand about trying to balance our books, whether that's in the home, whether that's in church, whether that's in your business, you've got to balance the books. And as somebody said, you're in real trouble when there's too much month left at the end of the money. Then you're in trouble, aren't you? So when there's more on the debit side than there's on the credit side, you're heading for trouble. What's on our debit side? What's our indebtedness? It's a lot, isn't it? It's a lot. Adam's sin, Paul says in Romans 5.12, was imputed unto us. When Adam sinned in the garden, every human being born from that time onwards inherited that sin nature from Adam. That became ours, not just his, but ours too. We were born in sin, shaping in iniquity. But then Romans 8 and 2 talks about the law of sin and death, which is ours too. <laughs> That's physically why we die eventually because of the law of sin and death. But then there are our own personal sins. We can't just blame Adam for everything because there are personal sins, because we have that sinful nature. And then there's the curse of the law. God's law is so perfect, it's so great, that James says, even if you just break one part of it, God will hold you guilty as if you broke all of it. So that's why we're all guilty before God, because we have broken lots of it. So that's all on our debit side. We're indebted to God. We owe God big time. 
What's on our credit side? Nothing. Zelsh, nada, zero, nothing. Spiritually, we were insolvent, broke, nothing. So here's imputation. The first act of imputation, Adam sins, and the consequences of it all was imputed unto us. Second act of imputation. God takes the sins of the whole world, your sins, my sins, all of our sins, and he imputes that unto Christ. For he made him in you sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes were healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've all turned our own way, but the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Imputed, reckoned unto him. But then the third act of imputation. Remember in our ledger there's a debit side and a credit side. The debit side was full, the credit side was empty. Not that Christ has a ledger, but if he did, if he did, then his debit side was completely empty. He was pure, spotless, undefiled, separate from sinners, holy, perfect in every way. So his debit side would have been empty, but his credit side would be full, full of mercy, full of love, full of compassion, full of power, full of joy, full of peace. And because of Calvary, God took our debts, gave them to Christ to pay the penalty for them, but then he took Christ's credits and he gave them freely to us. Glory to God. Remember I said, if you owed me a million and you couldn't pay and I forgave you all of that and wiped the slate clean, but then I went further and I gave you something to live on and I gave you a million in your account. Can you begin to think what God has given us that belongs to Christ? The Bible says we are heirs and joint heirs with Jesus Christ. That doesn't mean half and half. That means everything that's his is ours. Everything that his is ours has been credited to our account. Glory to God. So Christ going to the cross provided two things for us, our justification and our righteousness. And this came through imputation, through reconciliation. Let me, we're almost finished here. Just a couple of verses and we're done. In Ephesians chapter 2, Verse 4, it says, But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. But God who is rich in mercy, the word rich is plusios. And plusios is where we get the word Pluto from. And Pluto was a great Greek god of wealth. 
A plutocrat is somebody who, who reigns by virtue of his wealth. And God is so wealthy. <laughs> and God has made us in Christ fabulously, spiritually wealthy. And the thing is, we don't draw from it. And I'm as guilty as you on that. We do not draw enough from God's bank of spiritual wealth that he's got in store for us. For by grace have you been saved through faith. Not, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Glory to God. Just one more verse, then we're finished. Mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. And Hebrews, let me just finish with this. Hebrews chapter 7. Remember the Old Testament priest that Abraham met calls Melchizedek? a strange, mysterious priest who was a type of Christ. The writer of Hebrews brings that out. So Hebrews 7 says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth of all, first being, trans first being translated, this is what Melchizedek's name meant, first being translated, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. The Old Testament priest Melchizedek was a type, was a kind of Christ who was to come, who would live after the power of an endless life. And Melchizedek's name means righteousness and peace. And where will we find righteousness and peace? In the Lord Jesus Christ. When we receive his righteousness... That gives us peace. There is no true, real, lasting peace outside of the Lord Jesus Christ because he's the king of righteousness and he's the king of peace. Amen? Amen. So here are our heavenly twins this morning. Truth, mercy, righteousness, and peace met together, kissed each other, all in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. What a wonderful Savior is ours today. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the Son of God. You are the Holy One, the Mighty One. And yet you left the very throne in heaven and came to this earth in order to save us. And we thank you even though our debt was great <laughs> and we never could have paid it in a million years but yet in your great mercy you forgave us Hallelujah. and you cleansed us from all unrighteousness and you made us your child. And it's nothing that we could have done ourselves. We have nothing to boast about other than Jesus Christ. And we give you thanks today. Our boast is in the Lord. So thank you for so great salvation. Thank you for the gift of life that you imparted. Thank you for everything that's been forgiven. And yet thank you for everything that has been given to us. 
in Christ. So we bless you for this today. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We produce a variety of sermon videos and inspiring Christian content available for free on our YouTube channel. Just go to YouTube and search Moira Pentecostal or visit our website for more information, www.mpc.org.uk.